Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by... Patrick Green. And Dan Ferlito. And today we are here on a strange time and a strange day. Usually it's a Wednesday, but this is when we all could make it. And we're here to talk about 2049 before there was 2049. Essentially, this, these are a series of conversations that we've had. As everyone knows, or the people who are watching or listening eventually through Podbean or wherever. So we sent out a, a few shares to several pages asking people if they thought Blade Runner needed a sequel and if 2049 didn't exist what that sequel might be so this episode is really to cover that and to cover life before 2049 and as people who love films and we watch them and we talk about them and we're in conversation and in groups most films that I've seen like, for instance, Alien, I'm a big Alien fan. I'm always thinking, I wonder what the next one's going to be about. Is there going to be a next one? And I, I was curious if that was something that you guys thought of after you had seen, you know, many times the original Blade Runner film before there was an announcement. Was that, did your mind ever go there? And we posed those questions um, in several groups, and we want to cover a lot of those comments. We might not be able to get to all of them, but we're going to sort of generally address them. But for now... I want to discuss with you guys, and we'll get to comments and opinions later, what that conversation was like for yourself, like internally. Did you ever think, oh, wow, this is a great film. I love it. I wonder what the next one would be. Or was it, has it always just been a standalone thing for you? I never in a million years honestly thought that this would happen. And I, I also never in a million years wanted it to happen. This was not something that was like burning for me. It was something that I knew there had been burbles of it, you know, through the intervening decades, obviously, you know, there, for a long time, this, this was a moot point because there were licensing issues going on uh, with the source material. So, you know, there was back and forth about whether or not this was even a legal thing. And then there were other kind of stops and starts along the way, which I'm sure we'll get into, you know, with Ridley Scott and, and other people. Um, but even when those, when I would hear about that, I, I, I never actually thought it was going to happen. There, I, for me, there's like, there's like three films like that, like three films that, seem like they would be so great for a remake or like a contemporary sequel or something that I just never even considered that as a possibility until somebody brought it up to me. Blade Runner is one of them, which for me was just, there was just no reason to ever touch that again. Um, and I would say Jaws was another one. I, I One of my favorite movies of all time. It does not need any sort of redoing, even though there have been sequels to it. Like it, they can leave it in the past, you know. And Back to the Future is another one, a movie that I just absolutely adore that, you know, like I'm, totally sure could get some sort of a contemporary sequel, you know, like a fourth film, but really doesn't need it. And I'm really glad that, you know, that's not happening. Blade Runner to me was always in that category of great films that nobody needed to do anything further with that could just sort of sit there. Um, and can I, yeah, can I just quick side note, I just happened to be watching Back to the Future 3 last night. And I was like, holy shit, this is way better than I remember it. I used to like kind of write this one off like Godfather 3, you know? I was like, oh, first and second one are the best, blah, blah. Now I'm like, I don't know. This is kind of on par with the other films. The, uh, I forget the name of the actor, but the guy that plays Biff, the like, the Buford Tannen character is like just so superbly well acted. Like, I mean, it, it's obviously a character and exaggerated, but I was like, this guy is just chewing up the scenery every scene he's in. He's so good. So 
anyways. Dude, Tom Wilson, dude. So, so can I, you know what? I'm going to already derail this, but this is a live episode. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's we my have, fault. Wait, hang on, hang on. We have people joining us on a Saturday. They deserve to hear this ridiculous short story, which I will make very, very brief. Okay. So in Back to the Future celebrated its anniversary 10 years ago or whatever that was now. It's, uh, so it came out in 85, right? I don't know. Anyway, it was celebrating one of its milestone anniversaries. And, and Micah and I both really liked that film. We were taking a trip to Florida with some friends. We were going to meet up down there. And we decided to celebrate by watching Back to the Future like outside. So we set up this whole thing, brought the TV out. We watched it in the pool. It was great. It was like the Back to the Future vacation, right? Um, we were going to go to a comedy club to see Louis C.K., who then we couldn't get tickets to. So I was looking for other shows in the area that we could go to. And one of them was Thomas F. Wilson, who I sounded, sounded really familiar to me, but I wasn't even like thinking, you know, this was the guy from, that was Biff Tannen. It turned, we show up and it's actually Biff Tannen and we are sitting basically on stage with him in the heckling section. What? That's so and cool. So the whole fucking show was like him making fun of our table. And it was the most insane time. Uh, there, there were stories we hung out afterwards and everything. It was a comedy show? Off the air. Yeah, it was a comedy. He was a stand-up oh, comedian. I didn't know he did stand-up. I knew he was a talented act. artist. He does other yeah. stuff, but I didn't know he did stand-up. And stand a musician, up. too. And he does live music. That's and he does what comedy. it is. Yeah. Um, He's underrated, he, like, for sure. Very underrated. And it was one of the funniest nights of my life, which I'll tell you more about. But anyway, if anybody has the opportunity to see Tom Wilson live, go do it. So to me... I think that, um, and that was another one of these moments where it was such a weird coincidence because we were there celebrating this thing and all of a sudden, you know, Biff Tannen's on stage. Anyway, um, to me, Blade Runner was in that category of truly great films that did not need anything else. And I never even wanted it to happen. But, you know, I, I feel like that first, I was trying to think actually in preparation for this episode, what movie I was watching when I first saw the trailer drop, you know, the one that had like the temp music in it that I don't know if that was that. Did we ever find out if that was Johansson? I think that was Johansson's theme that he had done, but it wasn't his actual track. But you know, the one that had that that early music in it. Yes. That came out. Remember yes. that? Yeah. When well, he's walking a, down the street, it was yes. the first just teaser. I need to watch that again. That and was, it was like yeah. that little Blade Runner thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I remember just seeing that, and I and I was trying to remember what movie it was, and I can't. But I was weeping. <laughs> I was crying. I was so overwhelmed because I never thought it was going to happen. And I wasn't like following, you know, the insider gossip about it. I wasn't really that active on social media. And to just sort of have that, uh, it was a, uh, it was crazy. And especially because I was already such a fan of Denny Villeneuve that I just knew instantaneously that is it. Like that is the only person who could pull this off. And it just, and, and I had just gotten into his works like that year really in earnest. And man, that was an, and that was an amazing experience. But Dan, what about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, way behind you guys, uh, meaning that this was the time in my life when like, I just was just not into film in the same way that I am now. And like everything I've learned working on this podcast. So like, you know, of course I knew Kubrick's work and, and Spielberg and like famous directors, but it's like, I'm not, I wasn't paying that much attention to who the cinematographer is, who the composer is. It just, I was watching it like you're, you know, like you're a more average moviegoer that's just doing things casually. And I've always had my favorite films, et cetera. But so by the time I even heard that uh, Blade Runner was getting a sequel, it just was so out of the blue. And like, I think it was that same earlier, that same year, like probably at the beginning of the year. And I was like, huh, what? I'm like, they're doing what? I was like, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I was probably squarely in the midst of um, other fans, including you guys. I actually just off of a couple of our pages off this post that we did, I was tallying, like, did the movie need a sequel? And was the sequel a success? And overwhelmingly, I have at least 20 tallies for each of those categories. Most fans did not want a sequel. Most fans were 
pleasantly surprised with the sequel. So um, yeah, and and uh, this was before I boycotted trailers completely. So I definitely watched the trailer, and this is also the last instant. <laughs> this is also this is a point of contention between us, but um, this is the last time I can remember. I'm sure you guys have other examples, but it's the last trailer I remember that was done really well. Meaning, it gave you the atmosphere, it gave you the visuals, told you nothing about the story, didn't have any spoilers in it really, um, other than you know you seeing a little bit of of the atmosphere of the film and the setting. Um, What's so crazy I love about trailer. those trailers too is that they cut audio from the short films into the trailer and they created this narrative for the trailer about the story that we might be seeing that wasn't even true like we they they totally like and that's great everything it was great yeah and, and whether i think sometimes that's unintentional right because it's just like on smaller productions or something like you're not really sure what the final product is by the time you're like by the time you have to do promotion and you have to have a trailer you may not have final cut of the film yet and so you're just trying to throw things together and then it might change whereas knowing Villeneuve and how he works those sidetracks might have been intentional to throw people off and to not give people an idea what the story was going to be. I, I would venture to guess that was the case. Um, but yeah, I think I was, yeah, it, I mean, it's that weird feeling, right. That I'm sure you guys can relate to of, uh, wow. I'm really concerned at were and worried that they're making a sequel to like my favorite film of all time that I've always thought of as this standalone thing and this perfect masterpiece, especially after the final cut came out and also like, well, if they're making it, I'm definitely going to go see it. Like no matter what. Right. Like there was no chance I wasn't, I was going to like boycott it or anything like that. Like I was definitely going to be involved. Um, and so, yeah. So then once I realized it was coming out and, you know, then eventually the trailer got released, then I started to pay attention. That's when I found this podcast, you know, I started talking to you guys, we started having all these conversations. So by the time I sat down by myself, I think the first time I saw it to see it in theaters, I mean, I was definitely all in and stoked. And then of course the scroll comes on and you're just like glued to the screen. Um, so yeah, I think I fall squarely in the camp of most fans where it, I would not have had the courage or audacity to remake this film. Like if you had asked me, if I had the money to produce it, or if I was in the position to hire people to make it and someone asked me who should remake this film, I would say nobody, you know, like I would not have had, um, yeah, the courage to go through with that. So I'm really grateful to Ridley Scott and Villeneuve and Alcon, you know, everybody in the production um, who decided to roll those dice and who of course as we've talked about before did this like artistic you know masterpiece that was very likely to not make that much money and and ended up being such a beautiful product so again it's a miracle that it got made uh, as we've said before and i'm really grateful that it did yeah i feel similarly um when the final when that door shut at the end of the original film and there's deckard and rachel in that elevator they all of a sudden go into the stratosphere. They go into this place that is our, our hearts and also our imaginations. Deckard and Rachel are safe and they're somewhere. And it's the best ending I could have ever hoped for. It's not, it's an ending that is what if, and almost like what if everything, what if everything happens for them right now? It, there's so much hope despite the uncertainty it's just a glorious ending so not only was i not thinking about a sequel it wasn't even like oh i don't think it needs a sequel it was a complete story for me it was the the, the story of an uh, awakening of an, an awakening of 
this this well I was going to call her an android this replicant and this supposed human um, into a better life into a better reality and uh, they joined together and became better people and that was it end of story when things started coming out about 2049 of course I fully expected Rachel to be in 2049 I expected her to you know this uh, the, the film to host her and Deckard whatever was going on and then of course later on I don't think I knew I don't know if I knew she wasn't really I mean even though she was in the film and then you see her in the film generally she wasn't in the film but I didn't know that she was dead um, but when I think I heard about that before I saw 2049 and I was devastated I was devastated that like that ending in 2019 it was like it was too good to be true almost like at the end of aliens where you know ripley puts newt to bed and they go in the cryo sleep and you know ha not happily ever after but hey maybe a better tomorrow decker did not get a better tomorrow rachel did not get a better tomorrow and so i didn't i don't i can't remember if i knew that going in but that was a hard thing for me to get over her being the anchor point for me in the series um so but rewinding before all that i didn't they were perfectly nestled in my heart, um, as was the music, where you can go and escape to this world that is so comforting and uh, watch this story about what it's like to be human and how to be a better human. And then to wake up in 2049 um, was a hard thing to do. Um, but despite that hard thing to do, despite that story being um, the story that it is, it was essentially universally loved by fandom. I mean, of course, there are people who don't like it or who don't whatever, but generally it's universally loved, so you can't ask for more. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that um, in describing the ending and ta you talking about how you know perfect it was, I think one of the things those elevator doors closing gives us is um, sort of the same ambiguity that we see in other aspects of the story that make the film so beautiful, right? Like how are replicants made exactly? Like we don't know, it's left somewhat ambiguous. And ambiguity gives you, I think two things, right? It gives you mystery and it gives you potential because you don't know what happens to them. And so, like you said, there's this ethereal kind of aura of, well, it's Schrodinger's cat. You know, they, they could die the next day hunted down by someone. They could live happily ever after. They could live a normal lifespan. They could both expire in a couple of years. We don't really know. And there's something comforting to that mystery, right? It's like, well, we never find out. And then so all of a sudden to be, have this answer, at least some of these answers forced upon us was like, ooh, like you're taking away the ambiguity to a certain extent, even though of course, you know, and Fancher and Green ended up uh, making this story that is still uh, rife with ambiguity in, in different ways and asked different questions. And so I think they, they carried the torch of what's beautiful about the ambiguity of, of the first film into the second film in a totally new and different way. I mean, it's, it's everything we ask for. I think when I hear you guys, especially Jamie often repeating, like, give us something new, right? Give us something we haven't seen before. Like, yeah, if you want to use similar characters, that is not good or bad necessarily. It's all about, like devils in the details and how you do it. Right. And I think how they did it was really walking that line perfectly of giving us familiar character. But, you know, um, I can't remember, did the force awakens come out before or after this? Before 
2015, okay. two years before. Right. So, I mean, without getting into a Star Wars discussion, I think that the difference in Harrison Ford's comeback in The Force Awakens narratively versus the difference in 2049, I mean, is it, I think it's pretty impactful, right? One has these elements of fan service and something that it's like, whether they wanted this in the story or not, they felt like they like had to bring that character back in Star Wars. Whereas in this, it was like, they could have not, right? What if, um, I mean, it could have been Rachel who lived longer and we were shown, like, let's say Rachel survived and we were seeing her on the run with her child and Deckard had died because he had expired. Like that could have easily happened in the story and it would have been fine. I mean, it would have been a different story. But what I'm saying is it doesn't feel shoehorned in. When I see Harrison Ford an hour plus into 2049, Although some fans felt this way, I didn't get that sense of, okay, we're bringing Harrison Ford back. He's wearing a fucking Target t-shirt. Like they, they didn't even make him go through wardrobe. You know what I mean? Like I don't get that feeling. I just get this sense of a very um, lived in character who has gone through everything we've seen and more. And while Rachel brought, I mean, I'm getting into the plot a little bit, but while Rachel brought something wonderful to his life to the sad alcoholic loner you know all those negative traits we see in deckard and there's all this potential she then died and he had to abandon both of them and now is in isolation and just drinking himself to death and so all that potential was kind of squashed and i think between Harrison Ford's acting, which I think is superb in this, and, you know, the fact that he is an old man and he has gone through all kinds of things in his own life and who knows what kind of dramas and, and disappointments and everything else he's had, even though he's had a pretty good life. Um, and you really see that in his eyes, you know? So I, that was wonderful to see a character come back that just did not feel forced at all and to me felt like it fit perfectly into the narrative structure. Um, and like Harrison Ford himself said, you know, when I read the script... It was a, it was the script that convinced me to come back to this project because the script was so good. Uh, rewinding a little bit, uh, our friend Craig Chicoin says the ending of the final cut for me didn't necessarily give me hope for Decker and Rachel's future. After all, Gaff left his calling card. It was ambiguous. I think that's interesting. I've never read that. Certainly, he saw that Gaff was there in the apartment, but I never have not perceived or interpreted that last scene as something that's ambiguous. However, you do get the sense that they're on the run, that it's not going to be this easy story for them. And I think the comfort that I get from that last scene is that they're together. That's what matters. And they've awoken together. Maybe things aren't going to go well, but they're together. And that's what, that's part of what the story is about. And I think it's really, really great. Thank you, Craig, for that comment. I think it's a, it's a worthy discussion. Um, And and, uh, I I definitely think, um, okay. So if we think about a, a sequel for, the original Blade Runner film, before we know what 2049, what was going on through your in your guys' head in terms of what that sequel could be? Did you even process that? Dan, were you like, I don't want to think about what it might be because I want to have it fresh? Or were you playing out scenarios? Uh, you know, I don't remember putting very much thought into, oh, I wonder what this is. And, and again, I didn't scour the internet or read deeply about it, um, which I'm glad I didn't. Uh, but not for any particular reason. I was just kind of like letting it sit and be like, okay, let's see what this is. But little, little details trickle out, find Ryan, you know, find out Ryan Gosling's in the lead, find out um, he's a Blade Runner. I don't think they explicitly made it clear he was a replicant, 
in the previews or anything like that. So I think maybe that suspicion was thrown in online. Maybe you guys read a little bit more about it, but you know, um, I still remember the element of small surprise early on in the film when you find out that he's a replicant and I was like, Oh, well, that's a cool concept. Like we, they didn't add that ambiguity into it the way they did with Deckard. Now we know that our main character is a replicant and a Blade Runner. Um, so yeah, no, I think I let the story just kind of take me. I didn't uh, really consider the options. Um, we'll talk about this later. I think I've put a lot more thought into what if there was a third film, what would that story be as opposed to uh, what if the first film had a sequel? I really never really entered that headspace before 2049 came out, me personally. But Patrick, what about you? Yeah, I was really convinced that Kay was their son. I, I, I really, going into it, was like 100% ready for that. And then, of course, since most of the movie points in that direction, too, I remember thinking, oh, man, I kind of wish I hadn't, like, figured it out, you know? Uh, which, of course, was then vindicated when I had not figured it out at all, which was a really liberating feeling. But I, I think the trailers are kind of setting us up to think that way, especially finding, like, the date carved into the wood and things like that. I, I was like, oh, this is somehow you know, he, he is what came of their escape. And this is like, you know, this, this was what this journey was all about. Um, but I, I, do, I do think something that I want to go back to from a little while ago, you know, Jamie, you were saying how, you know, there's this feeling going into it of like, they never got their tomorrows, um, which was kind of sad. But I, I, to me, like it never, I wasn't upset about that, even though I also felt like Rachel was dead. I wasn't upset because I, to me, the point wasn't tomorrow. The point was today. And I think that the ending of 2019 ends with them finally getting a today for the first time, like a moment mm -hmm. to live in the present, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's why, although like there's a sense of loss in 2049 and there's a sense of gravity to it, it doesn't feel like it wasn't worth it. Like it, it never feels like suffering for the sake of suffering. It feels like suffering in the noble pursuit of living, you know? And I, I feel like, so I wasn't like super, super upset in that way, but I, I definitely remember specifically thinking that this was um, their child somehow. I don't think I was like upset, like oh my god, the sequel's gonna let me down because, you know, Ra Rachel's dead. I don't think I don't know if I even guessed that she was dead. I was scouring already before that, trying to see what Sean Young's involvement was because it was right. been reported through Paul Salmon's book that she had flown to Budapest to film film some scenes, and then it said three days. So I'm thinking, hmm, that's not very long to be on a on a, a film of this magnitude. However, Harrison Ford wasn't, you know, much, much of that film doesn't include him either. Um, but I think, I also think what I love about 2049 is that it usurps our ideas of what it could be. It would have been very precious if Kay would have been Deckard's kid, like way too precious, way too on the nose. And they decided let's flip that on its head. Sometimes, you know, the part the part in the story you think you are, you want to be, isn't the part in the story that you're going to be, you know? And that's where Kay fell in. His part in that story was to do what was right and to um, help this man find it. I mean, he took on the role of both Rachel and Roy Batty again for Deckard, bringing him out of this isolation. Because when we meet Deckard again, there he is, alone in an apartment. I mean in a different setting, of course, years later, very alone, surrounded by books and alcohol. He's drinking again. He's lost himself. He's a version of the same man that we saw. He's lost everything that's given him life. And Kay is the Roy Batty and the Rachel and everything to bring him into the life that he knew before. So I thought it was, it was lyrical. It was 
wholly unique. You know, you're talking about, you know, The Force Awakens. There's a lot of similarities between the two. The Force Awakens goes down the precious road, um, whereas 2049 goes down the smart road, I think. It's harder to ask your audience to believe things have happened to the characters that they love that aren't necessarily good or hard to stomach. I mean, Deckard went through so much in 2049 and that's, it's, it's hard to even recognize him. And people have said that, have said that friends of ours who have a hard time with the film because they can't recognize Deckard. Um, and I don't, I think the point is that Deckard is again, unrecognizable um, in every way. And I think by the end of it, he's a little more recognizable. So it's not yeah. easy for sure. And I think that he's a good stand in for um a bigger concept of again familiarity but really the world that we knew from the first film is gone and this is somewhat unrecognizable and i think that the throwbacks that they did to the first film are all sort of a little more abstract not direct and not in your face right there's very few like easter eggs and sort of this like tactical placement of nostalgia items and nostalgia themes and 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 whatever um right like i mean really i can only think of a few of direct ones right like uh, the deckard apartment sound which was famously left as an easter egg by the um sound designers and they admitted to it and it's like yep that's the only one everything else is new sound or uh deckard's figurines right that he carves out of wood um i think is it a rhinoceros is it a rhino again in 2049 well it's, it's a rhino and there's others like an elephant right and, right right see, okay and the lion is there i think you see right so that's an obvious throw but again none of it is like feels like someone going oh let's throw this in fans will think that's cute it's more like no no that's just one of deckard's hobbies so if we're going to bring this character back that's obviously something that he does right um similar and even the inside of deckard's apartment right it's this it's completely like sunlit uh, Vegas high-rise apartment, um, yet there's something very decorative about it, right? There's a a beauty and a disorder to things. It's like the paintings that they picked to put on the wall are very specific, and like Rick Howard has brought some of them up, and fans have talked about who the artists are, and I'm sure there's deeper meaning behind all that if you know those artists. But also there's a fucking pyramid of whiskey bottles because Deckard's just like, fuck it, I got to put them somewhere and the recycling truck ain't coming by. You know, it's just like very lived in and very real and very Deckard without anything that you have to roll your eyes to and say, okay, we're just trying to like bring this back to the first film. There's just none of that. Um, uh, Even, you know, like, I mean, I could go on, I I won't, but uh, the defunct darkened Tyrell pyramid that the new Wallace earth headquarters like towers over because it's like six times as big or whatever and it's like again that's not a throwback for the sake of throwback they could have right it's such an amazing model right to include that model whether it's lit or not is just like so um so enticing because it's like one of the best miniatures like ever built and especially in a sci-fi film but that's not what it is it's like no it's just like they wouldn't have spent money tearing this down they would have just shut it down and like here's this new building that's taking over it's just like there's that very lived in feel to it and i think if you go back to episode 14 where jamie one of my favorites where jamie um interviews some of the model makers from weta 
in the details of how they describe making the buildings, uh, which I've talked about ad nauseum because it's like one of my favorite factoids about 2049, like that's exactly the approach that they took. It's like, well, it's this city, but 30, 35 years later, and here's how people would have actually built these buildings had they been built. They weren't going for a finished product. They were going for a mental process of how would this be done. And I think there's an approach by Villeneuve and all of the professionals he hired to the whole film that's like that. Um, and that gives this, it gives it this amazing lived in feel with some returning and familiar characters in a totally new setting. It really feels like what if you looked at your life 30 years from now, right? You would recognize certain people, you would recognize certain things. Um, but so many things, you know, Patrick, how many times are you going to have you moved in the last 10 years and where would you end up in the next 30? Things like that, that, um, yeah, just are part of that great storytelling and great character writing. Uh, I'd say we should go over some of the comments now before we get into further into the decisions that they've made for the sequel, just to hear what people are, what people were saying. Um, I can start if you want to, and then Dan or Patrick, guys want to we can just go randomly um yeah w william powell in the blade runner 2049 worldwide fans group says hard question to answer um i don't know what that word is 20 seeing having seen 2049 but if there was going to be something else i would like them to, i would like to see them take it to places like london or hong kong i'd also like to see the remnants of the tyrell corp ran for his niece yeah, I saw a couple of comments like that. There was someone else as well. I don't have that particular one pulled up, but it does talk about different setting. Um, here, let me read a couple. Simon Drake was saying, okay, so a, a few, I'll read a couple of these sequel ideas. Some of them are sequels to 2049. Some are sequels to the original, but here's Simon Drake's sequel idea. Deckard and Rachel were hiding out in the deserted top half of a skyscraper in the partially submerged city of San Diego, trying to live in peace. A hit squad from the Tyrell Corporation, run by the twin sons of Tyrell, find them and are trying to kill Deckard and capture Rachel for the information she might know about Tyrell's work on the unethical stealing of others' memories for illegal implants. Deckard and Rachel have to go on the run from the hit squad and then decide to return to L.A. to infiltrate the Tyrell Corp to find evidence of Tyrell's work and destroy it. Deckard and Rachel would almost mirror Roy Priss being on the streets, hunted by a hit squad and trying to access the Tyrell building for answers. More stealthy infiltration scenes and Deckard using some old context of his and Rachel's knowledge of the Tyrell world to infiltrate and find answers. Um, I, I really like that infiltration aspect to that story. Um, Tiago Volpato, I don't, man, I'll just pronounce that like an Italian, but that is a cool name. Uh, talking about a third Blade Runner. Um, and he's talking a lot about who should be brought back, like Fancher and um, Green and, you know, people doing the cinematography. But, um, yeah, he says, in 2017, Hampton Fancher, who wrote the both films, said he was thinking about reviving an old idea of history involving Deckard traveling to another country. That sounds interesting, an odyssey all over the world, a broken, devastated world. In addition, a third full-length film about off-world colony in the veins of James Cameron's Aliens action sequence, a new story, but related to the original films. Um, and I think, yeah, like, to throw in my piece on that, um, and then I, I counted at least four comments, including myself, um, 
to do some kind of prequel. You know, I, I was always interested in seeing, like if I, if I did a third film, I'd be interested in uh, a young Tyrell and watching the political machinations of how he made his fortune and how he came to power, um, how he started that company, all the dealings back, you know, background stories and, and um, corruption, stuff like that. I would really like to see a story like that. Want me to do a couple from the live thread that are coming through? Sure. Uh, so, uh, so Craig Chicoin says, regarding a potential opening for a sequel, I remember Ridley Scott only mentioning the original opening scene for the original film to be reused in 2049, as was the case. Um, Carla Rosa says, I was really afraid of a sequel. One of the reasons was that the ending of the original is perfect as it is, open. And Xander House uh, says, 2049 is the perfect sequel. I can't imagine anything else. And Carla agrees with Dan that Tyrell would be an interesting angle, which I, I do too. A lot of people are also saying that they'd like to see Off-World, what that would, might be like. It's interesting. I don't know if I want to see Off-World. I think I'd like the idea when you see the blimp or you hear the blimp saying, Off-World, we don't really know what life is like. I, I like that idea that it's a life that's better somewhere else. And yeah. you're sort of trapped in the in in the life that you have on earth. I mean, I, I think they, 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 they could probably do it very well. They would just have to be very careful about it. Um, yeah, that's true. I, off world comes up a lot. And I'm also like the same way I was tentative about a sequel at all. I'm like, Ooh, you know, when people talk about wanting to see the Tannhauser gate and stuff like that, I'm like, no, yeah. I don't want to see any of that. It's too poetic, too yeah. ethereal. I'd rather yeah. leave it in the ether. It's the um, same way where I don't want to know how Han Solo got his name. I don't know how. Why, why, I don't want to know why they call Chewie Chewie. Um, leave those alone. Um, but what's also right. interesting is the overarching um, opinion that everyone was scared about a sequel, and a lot of people were like, "I don't know, I don't know about this." Um, of course, before the film released, which I think is interesting, and well-intentioned i mean you can't how do you go from blade runner to a sequel and be like uh you know that's that's probably the hardest thing it's the hardest sequel you could ever pull off and they pulled it off yeah. and, the, and the people most reluctant about getting a sequel are by and large the people who are the most ardent fans of it you know which yeah. is, how, how many properties can you say that about right yeah like so many things end up getting a sequel basically because fans are just begging for it all the time right and and they, they do campaigns and they do you know, uh, they do like petitions and things and, and then eventually the studio gets it. And they're like, okay, let's explore this as a possibility. But Blade Runner, even though it had been dormant for a long time and had eventually made a lot of money on, you know, home video and things like, it was not, um, the fans were not asking for this to ever happen. And I feel like that's interesting. And I, I'm just super briefly before you keep going. Um, I, I agree that I don't want to see off world and I don't want to see a lot of the sort of the other things going on because something that I love about Blade Runner is how unconcerned it is with its own world building. I think that that frees it up a lot um, because at the edges of Blade Runner mythology are a lot of open-ended things, right? That allow us to use our imagination to sort of figure it out and to, and to imagine things from the same point of view as the replicants that we're experiencing the film with, you know? Um, and I think that if, if we were to start setting up this universe where we had to kind of see everything, then it's like, where do you stop? Like, wh like where do you, you know, like how many doors can you close on something before it starts becoming something it isn't? And at the end of the day, Blade Runner is always an ellipsis, you know, it's never a period. And I think that if you were to start showing things like off-world, like, so for example, in the comic books, we do see off-world a little bit. And what I love about that, and I think it's very intelligent, is that we see almost nothing. Like we see tiny glimpses of things or we hear things referenced very obliquely. And it's clear that, you know, Green is aware of this aspect of this, right? That, that this is not like, we don't want to all of a sudden be like, well, you know, here in the off-world colonies, we have 34, you know, 
Citadel set up and nine different planetoids. It's like, yeah, let me, let me explain everything about how this government works now in this collapse right. society. It's like, no, we don't want to All know we know that. is that we can see like ore in the side of something and there's like a star outside. And that's like, that's kind of it. And that there are just people that are working, you know? And I, I feel like that to me is, is more than enough in, in a film, because once you start giving a little bit when it comes to answers and yeah, sure. Star Wars falls prey to this too. I think once you start trying to come up with explanations for things, you sort of set yourself up to have to explain a lot more than you planned on. Um, and I'm glad that we don't have to worry about that with Blade Runner. I hope it yeah. continues to be the case. It's, it's the same. It's that, I mean, it's a comment that I've made a lot where it's about asking better questions, not answering old ones. Um, or if you're going to answer old ones, make sure that those answers are questions themselves. Um, that's why the whole Decorep thing is kind of, I wouldn't say boring, but we don't, what's interesting about that discussion is the discussion not the answer to the discussion and i think uh why 2049 ended up being so brilliant is because you had writers fighting against that thing writers do when they approach sequels which is to demystify for whatever reason that's a very big issue in hollywood where they're like oh let's just answer these old questions and let's give them iterations of things that they've seen before right 2049 really was the balance between that where there was some definite aesthetics and dialogue that we were used to because it's a world that's familiar while telling a a completely different story. And uh, that's, again, you know, when you hear Sapper say in the beginning, you know, we've never seen a miracle. This film is a miracle that it even was made. The way that it was made, the risks that they took uh, in terms of budget, in terms of story, in terms of how little there's... Harrison Ford was in that film and essentially, you know, how little Rachel, even though Rachel really wasn't in it, she sort of was, I mean, huge risks where you have these big legacy characters that everyone loves that the natural, the natural inclination would be, Oh, let's just bring them back because that's what Hollywood does. Let's bring them back and let's squeeze them for all they're worth. They didn't. They said, let's make some hard, hard decisions here. And they did. And it paid off in spades. Yeah. Right. I mean, for, Again, to to make a, a, I think Star Wars references come up so much because they've been doing sequels and prequels for so long that it's like one of the biggest franchises that's done that, um, you know, to to some, certainly to financial success, but in terms of story and characters, you know, the success is very mixed and it kind of depends on what kind of fan you're asking. But um, I was going to say for every Rogue One, there's like a hundred solos, right? Like Rogue One took these very brave steps to tie in characters from other films and tie in the story and did, you know, specify some things about the construction of the Death Star. And they did bring back a digital Peter Cushing. Like they did all these things that were risky, but they did it so well and wrote it so well um, that it worked. But again, that's, you're, you're just stepping on very, very thin ice, I think, when you start doing those things. I'm going to read one more, if I can, from Reno D, who's a friend of ours and a patron. And I would say, uh, I could say this from, I know you guys have had conversations with him as well. He's very skeptical of this kind of thing, and he is very harsh on filmmakers who do a shitty job. So I think he's a, he's a harsh critic, and so that's why I want to read his comment. He says, did Blade Runner need a sequel? Short answer, no, definitely not. The same applies for 2049. It doesn't need a sequel. Both stories go very well together and both can stand beautifully on their own. Am I glad we got one? Yes. I've always wanted to see more of that world, but I've always thought it would be safer to have it evolve in our own mind that 
on screen as sequels, prequels, interquels can sometimes be good, but more often than not, they can be brand damaging as studios and writers have a tendency to force new meanings to every single tiny detail that appeared on screen in the original work or over explain things in a feeble attempt to appear clever. That is also the reason why I avoid comics and animated series set in the universe of film and in which they make use of legacy characters rather than telling a completely fresh and independent story. I think he was really asking us, uh, are the comics worth reading? And me and him had a conversation about that. And I think he has read them and liked them because I was like, yes, go read them. Uh, now that being in 2040... Now, that being, if 2049 didn't exist or if another Blade Runner movie was made, personally, I would like a bit of a time jump and I would like to see an entirely new cast of characters. Nobody from a previous installment returning and that might be controversial, move it away from Los Angeles. Show me New York. Show me Paris. Show me Hong Kong. Show me what it looks like somewhere else in the world. Avoid anything that can easily dip its toes in the action genre. One of the reasons why I have zero interest in seeing the replicant revolution on screen and keep it neo-noir, slow burn, and bring some new thought-provoking ideas. Don't use 2019 or 2049 as a pair of crutches. Bring a real auteur director, as they did with Villeneuve. Bring me someone who has a story to tell rather than someone who was involved with X or Y franchise that made a zillion dollars at the box office. Blade Runner should remain artsy. I don't want to see it sink into the filth that is modern commercial filmmaking. And I think, you know, again, that resonates with a lot of us fans. It's like a tightrope walk um, when they, when you, when you make a sequel and you have to take risks. The smart writers take risks and sometimes those risks pay off and sometimes they don't. Even in this discussion of 2049, you could say that largely the risk didn't pay off because the film didn't, was not financial, was not financially successful. It didn't make, I mean, I think it made $91 million domestic. I don't know the um, worldwide tally at the moment but it wasn't this generally generally it broke even by hollywood terms i mean i think it ended up in the positive eventually right i don't i don't know what their marketing budget was well i think it made like 81 million dollars with home video sales which the original did the same thing i mean it, it didn't do well in theaters and all of a sudden it got this cult following and people started buying the dvds and when the director's cut came out it really just catapulted it into a different level and people were buying it and people were talking about it and it started making more money again. Um, and I think that's what 2049 is doing as well. It's, it's this film that right. it was a success with the fandom and that is hard to do. I mean, again, I'm only bringing this up because it's similar. You have a film like last Jedi that takes lots of risks that I actually loved. Shut up, Patrick. Um, and it wasn't successful. But with you've the... been complaining about Star Wars on every episode I'm not complaining. for three months, Jamie. I'm it's not so complaining. Why are we still talking about Star no, Wars? I'm just, I'm just, stuff. well, okay. So name me another movie then. I'm just I'm talking gonna, about it for the relevancy, for the relevancy. They're, just, they're totally different franchises. Like there's, there's they're just, different, but I'm just saying when Star you take Wars a. made for kids. It, it's, yeah, it's, but it's when you take a risk. Media, you know? But when you're you take a risk. Everybody take it easy. Take it easy. But you, when you take a risk. On like Rogue One was a risk. It was, and like Dan said, it it danced how in the writing and how it tied everything together in a way that wasn't heavy-handed, in a way that it was telling something new. But that's also a risk as well. And then you have again the Last Jedi that that also t- took some big risks and people hated it um, and it lost. And so I'm using that as the model because. Blade Runner 2049 also took some major risks. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about is um, some of the criticism that you see um, 
for Blade Runner 2049 is that it wasn't the world that people um, remember. One of the things about the comics that I, I that I find interesting, but I also find not so much boring, but like I've already seen 2019, Los Angeles in 2019, what it looks like. It's amazing. We have a film. I don't know if I want to see comics set in the same world. Yo, like, Jamie fucking hates comics. <laughs> um, but and I, I, for me, like I've read the comics and I think that they're interesting. I don't think that they're, oh my God, amazing. And I have, but there's this pivot. Even I can feel it with Alkin and the stories that they're telling and they're going back to LA at the same time because that's what people love. And I think that that's risky. I think it's really risky. I think it, people we should go to Hong Kong or to New York or to somewhere else to see what the world is like. And I'm, if they told another, if they set another film, say Alcon released another film and it's set in 2018 Los Angeles in that universe, I would be like, I've seen this before. Yeah. I, I, I want to see something. That's why 2049 is so brilliant is because I, there's elements of it that I've seen, but there's elements of it that I hadn't seen before. But that's a risk that they have to take. Um, but I think Blade Runner is successful in large part because both films are risks. Both films are about, we're telling you a story and maybe it's not going to make a lot of money, but we feel like it has there's a lot of integrity here and we feel like it, there's something original to tell. If they pivot back into something comfortable, I don't know. I don't know how successful it's going to be. We'll see with Black Lotus. Maybe the right. anime part of it is going to be what's original about it. But I'm a little bit hesitant, as excited as I am for it, to go back into 29, to go, to go back into LA again with the same aesthetic because it's comfortable. There, there's something to be said, I think, for um, while like Off World, for example, is enticing and a totally new thing and whatever. It's kind of completely separate from LA, which goes along the lines of what you're saying, but I think it's like too far separated, right? Whereas if you were to show, say, New York um, or Miami or something, a different setting on Earth around the same time, um, what you see helps the world building of LA and the other films, right? Because it gives you a contrast and you're like, oh, look how different New York is for these reasons because the natural disasters that happened in New York were different and the government structure that remained in New York is totally different. Um, and it would give you contrast on how LA and how Vegas um, and San Diego feel as well. Um, and so there's something, like you said, about walking that fine line between showing something completely new, but that's relatable, you know? Um, or, you know, we've talked about short stories and like Sapper Morton. Sapper Morton was brought up several times in, in terms of prequels and stuff. Uh, other people had comments about that. We've talked about it. Um, and I think there's also something to be said that you can have some leeway if you show something um, that's condensed, right? A conversation inside of a spacecraft. Or like, for example, uh, something I was thinking about, you could show... Um, if Roy and his crew successfully uh, killed a, a crew on a spacecraft on a shuttle and made it back to earth, how many other replicants attempted to do something like that and failed, right? We could see an internal story of conflict of replicants. So there'd be familiarity because we kind of know their motivations and know the psychology of, of that process and what they're trying to do. Yet it'd be a tragedy. You could see um, replicants that were crushed and suppressed that didn't make it because Roy's crew is probably just one of many who attempted to do what they did. So like there are ways zooming in and zooming out to uh, show something compelling that doesn't 
ruin the world building of the other films and adds to it. But again, it's very, very tricky. I don't know. To me, I'm, I'm getting hung up on, on something. And, I, and I'm noticing this in the comments too. I think a lot of us are focusing on very superficial aspects of storytelling. Like a lot of the ideas that we're getting are very much like, oh, I'd like to have it set here. Like I'd like to have it set in this year. Or like, let's see it with this kind of thing going on. Or like that. To me, like you could make it almost set anywhere and any time if it's actually about something honest, you know? I think part of why 2049 resonates so vividly with us, I don't think, I, I really like, I know we're talking about it as a sequel and that because of that we have to look at it through that lens, but to me it's not because it reminds us of things by being, but also is different. I don't think it's because it hits that sweet spot. Like it does those things, but that's not why it's special. It's special because it's really about something. Yes, like it's really, absolutely really about something. And I think that that is what makes a story work. I think if, if, I mean, if I saw something set in 2019 Los Angeles that was actually truly about something, in a heartbeat, I would say that was a success, you know? I think that where you set it and when you set it, it's obviously fun to think about, and it's like, and it's an interesting kind of exercise. But at the end of the day, like, that is the trap that bad filmmakers fall into. And, and, and it's like, and you can see it happening with us here and on these threads that we're posing out there, not to take anything away because people are putting these awesome ideas out there, but that is a trap that you can fall into. If, if you get caught up in thinking, well, you know, we want it to remind people of the original, but be its own thing and like have its own flavor to it. If that's the angle the story comes from, it's going to fail. To me, the reason why 2049 works at the end of the day, if you can get rid of everything else is Hampton Fancher. I think, and the reason I'm saying that is because having spoken with him now a few times and having gotten to like really sit down and talk with him, he talks the way Blade Runner talks, right? He is a person of questions and a person of, of humor and a person of open-endedness and somebody who really like, you know, he doesn't answer anything because he answers by asking you something else, you know? And then in doing that, Socratically, you end up answering something, right? So I, I really feel like and, and, and especially like when I got to talk to him in person, it was at the premiere of the opera that he had done the libretto for, right? Which was the most batshit avant-garde, crazy three hours I've had. And I, and I say that as a modernist composer who goes to crazy shit all the time. I mean, that was absolutely, you know, it started with a toilet flush and there were puppets coming out of the walls and shit. It was crazy. But it was crazy for a reason. It was because it was about something that was beyond the aesthetic and beyond the shock value. There was something really, truly ineffable going on under all that. And so to me, I don't think Hampton, if he were involved with something, would ever let it be conventional. And I don't think he would ever let it be traditional. And I don't think he would ever give a fuck what anybody else's ideas were about when it should be set or where it should be set or how many spaceships should be involved in it. I really think that at the end of the day, Blade Runner is a film about ideas. And the ideas are what have to come first. So if we're getting another movie, I would hope that whoever's involved with it, A, would include Hampton Fancher, and B, would be coming at it like this first film is about finding life. The second film is about finding meaning. The third film is about finding what? And when they figure that out, then do whatever you want with it. But, but to me, the conversation has to start and end with, with that deepest part of the story. And as key, I think, what you're mentioning in terms of Hampton Fancher, he for lack of better terms, is the father of Blade Runner in light of Philip K. Dick being dead. He took that mantle. He knows what story is there, if there's more story to tell, if that story with Rachel and Staline and um, Deckard is done or not. Um, and that's, I think, also key for successful filmmaking, where you go to the storyteller. 
and you find out is there more story you don't hand it off to other people to say hey can you can you find a story here no you need to go to the person who's assisted and spoken to the original writer and translated that material no one i think there's no one else in a screenwriter or a storyteller in hollywood that knows the material of the android's dream of electric sheep than hampton fancher that materials living and breathing in him it's probably as much a part of him as you know th things are a part of us i mean he, he knows that material very well and i think if hampton fancher said i just think that this story with with rachel and deckard and selena is done we need to move on i would hope that alkin would be like okay well what else do you have for us um and i i think that that's what's smart about the, ch the choice that they made to go with him because they, they could have said, hey, no, we want to go with someone else. They could have went with David Peoples, really, um, and they didn't. They went to Hampton Fancher, and that was a wise choice on their, on their part, especially in a system that notoriously goes to the younger, hotter writers. That's what they always do. When they're going to write a sequel, when they're going to re when they're going to restart something, who's who's a writer that's that's out and what what movie's doing really well right now? Let's get him. Let's bring him over. That's what they do. And they didn't do that. And uh if JJ Abrams writes and directs a third Blade Runner film, I'm gonna jump out the window of the tent. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> we have this new Star character. More this uh, this new character, her name is Drachel. <laughs> She has nothing to do with Rachel. Rachel. Raquel. Yeah, I'm sorry I got cranky about Star Wars. I, and Xander has had a funny comment. He said, Shoulder of Orion, the Star Wars, I mean, Blade Runner podcast. It, it's, it's because, it's, because it's, just, it's just a conversation that we just fall into so easily. And, and I think it actually, and, and so I'm sorry I'm grumpy about it, but I'm grumpy about it because I'm really tired of trying to shoehorn this conversation into just films that have absolutely nothing at all to do with the films that we're talking about. To me, like Star, Star Wars at the end of the day is such, and I fucking love Star Wars, as you know, hugely. It's so different Bigly. from Blade Runner, bigly. Um, it's, it's just, so, it's so different. And the, con the considerations going into a Star Wars sequel are titanically far removed from the considerations going to, I mean, Star Wars has had like an average of a film every two years coming out, basically, you know, in some form since 1978, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is the only sequel to this other movie. And it took decades decades to come out mm -hmm. and the total viewing audience is maybe one literally one one hundredth of what the star wars viewing audience is this is a movie that the considerations are so wildly different for it so i just feel like it's sort of a futile exercise to kind of well because, well just saying one second because it's easy to complain about star wars because we're complaining about star wars on a blade runner podcast and it's just it's just total it's just totally different it's like you know it, it's punching down in a way and it, i think that's what kind of bothers me about these conversations because like my children who are huge Star Wars fans as well, and with whom I've seen all of the movies many times, they can't stand Rogue One. It just doesn't, it, they, they actually hate that movie. Um, and they also don't like the prequels. They think the prequels are garbage, but they really like the original trilogy. And they oh, you're the raising them right, are, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> they, and they really think that the sequels are, are good, but they really love the original trilogy. And it's for a reason, I think. It's because that is closer, you know, and I love Rogue One. I don't want to be misquoted on this. I absolutely love Rogue One. But I think- Yo, Patrick hates Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> the original trilogy and, the, and somewhat the sequels, I think are closer to what, what the, the idea heart of Star Wars actually is, which is fundamentally about heroism and redemption, right? That's, Star Wars is, is that. To me, Blade Runner is, is much murkier than that, right? I would Blade agree Runner with- is yeah. a cornucopia of things you can barely pick out of the darkness. And then when you do, 
the, the, the light that you find is brighter because of the darkness that surrounds it and you gleam onto it and you're like, oh my God, Absolutely. that's what this is about. And that's why this is my movie and that's why I hope they never touch it again. And that's why we all, like when the doors close at the end of the, of the film, like at the, of the final cut, we are all sitting there like, please like don't open them again. Like don't, like they, they closed externally and they opened in my heart and now this movie is mine for the rest of my life right? absolutely star wars i'm always like oh cool what's the next one like great oh yeah. this was exciting yeah. oh i'm emotional okay what's the next one blade runner is just very, it's very different and and i and i so i'm sorry i'm grumpy about it i just don't no 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 i i think that that's okay but i think uh just to give you some framework when i mention star wars my mention of it is for comes down to the intent of the writers and which is the same intent for the writers of Blade Runner. They want a film that's successful. They want a film that that touches fandom, that is financially successful. And so when I bring up the comparisons, it's not, I think the material is vastly different. 100% agreed on everything that you said. I just bring it up in a way where you have films that are submitted to fandoms and audiences with the same intent. And one can be massively successful and make no money. And one can be massively successful and completely tear fandom apart. Mm. Um, but, and, you know, the risks, you know, arguably the risks taken in Last Jedi were really big risks and it tore that fandom asunder. And the same risks were taken with Blade Runner and people were like, fuck yes, this is the film that I love to see. And so that's, I, I, this is a framework comparison for me. It's not a, yeah. it's not about the material. But, it's not about the content. Um, right. So, and I mean, I could bring it up with Alien. I mean, you're talking about something to say, and you know, that's something that I've talked about. Like for yeah. instance, Alien Resurrection, they brought Ripley back and she did nothing. <laughs> You've, I've heard, I've said that over and over and over. And that's yeah. what happens when you have a writer who doesn't, who doesn't know what they're doing. You bring back a legacy character in a different iteration of her and they do nothing. And that is a dangerous path to go down. And it flopped, not probably simply because she did nothing, but be also because the script was garbage. Um, but it was the same attempt. It was, it was the same intention that they had with, alien hey it's hollywood doing what hollywood do does that worked over here this worked over here throw a little bit of that in there throw a little bit of that in there and see if it worked where when they approached hampton hampton fancher doesn't approach material that way at all and he approaches material the way that it should be approached which is i think and even though we find it successful in terms of a studio they might not find that successful because it it was too highbrow. It was too esoteric. It was too much. And I think um, that's where the value of bringing up other franchises is. It's Patrick's right. You can't look at Star Wars through a Blade Runner lens, right? Blade Runner is like rated R, dark, like depressing. It's just a totally different uh, audience. However, audiences are also conditioned, I think, by the context of the times and the context of what films are coming through i mean i remember people sitting next to me in 2049 falling asleep in the film and then when it was over being like yeah. i don't know hey i like the star wars one better or like that you know like people are comparing them in that way because they're maybe not going deeper into it um and i think the context is important because again the fact that an artistic film like 2049 managed to get greenlit and they hired all the people that they hired and put out this film which had very low chances of being financially successful. You know, another thing that's inevitable to mention is that we are living in a world where especially Marvel and with Joker, some DC franchises, like the new mark is like, can we make a B 
billion fucking dollars off this movie. I mean, that's not hyperbole. Like that's literally what the studios. Surreal? It's still surreal it's, to me when I see box office returns that are one point three or one point four billion dollars. It's like, crazy, right? Up? Fuck, that's so much money. Yeah. yeah. And so to be fighting against that financial, you know, capitalistic context makes it that much more difficult to try and make something like, um, yeah, I mean, even we just talked about Moonlight recently on, on Frame Rate. Again, I'm not trying to bring up all these other films, but I'm saying like the context of the world you are living in and trying to produce art in really matters. And we are in this extreme place now where uh, relying on previously uh, constructed structure is a formula that works for most fans. And so the the temptation to get lost in that in a type of series like the Blade Runner universe that should not dabble in that at all um, is really high. And so when we see things like 2049 come out and if someday we'll see a third film, hopefully they go along these lines is not getting sucked into that and kind of, it's, it's almost like uh doing the right thing when no one is looking like that's when it matters. Right. When you have nothing to gain or get props from, like, do you do the right thing? Like making a film as if making money off of it was not, not, it didn't matter, but which is not the most important thing is risky and you're going to get pushback, right? Because people have to finance these things. Um, And so that, I think all of that context makes 2049 that much more special, that much more rich and, that much more of a miracle that's why it's important to me and that much harder to compare to other properties and, and i think it's not it's not coincidental that star wars comes up so much because i, I really think we there's no corollary to 2049 out there's like nothing else we can talk about it in terms of like i actually would challenge people watching this or listening to it like give us ideas of other franchises to think about where there have been almost 40 years between installments and they were actually genuine sequels not a remake starring original cast member i mean i i i can't think of it I, I really can't i mean i can think of things like star trek that you know had subsequent installments that were decades apart but in the middle of that there were dozens of entries and I, I mean I, I i really don't think this is something we have a vocabulary to talk about and i think that that alone says a lot about how amazing and miraculous it is it's it's just absolutely extraordinary you know i will say and jamie you can you can turn off your camera for this part if you don't want to talk about it um, uh, one of the only, a film that reminds me of 2049 a lot, and it did when I first saw it too, even though thematically it's very different, is Into the Spider-Verse. I think part of that is because it's something that was similarly, it could not have existed if the people making it didn't care like so stupidly intensely about it that they took like just way more time and way more money and way more risks and, and used way more talent knowing that what they were producing would never make a tremendous amount of money for all the work that went into it right the work that goes into making an mcu film is huge and i'm not taking anything away from that but uh but there are there are apparatuses in place to help it come together right like like you said dan like there's an established framework there's an established you know there's biz model set up for this thing producing it you have kind of a chain of command you know what how it's going to go it's very tightly structured into the spider-verse which of course is not an mcu film even though there's marvel characters in it was something that was created completely outside of that of the pipeline of any other superhero films. It was created so slowly with such painstaking love and care that um, in doing that, they knew that they were going to be basically wasting money on it from a financial standpoint because it was never going to be an enormous hit because it was so offbeat and it was animated and blah, 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 blah. 
Um, in 2049, similarly, I, ne I never get the sense that when they were making it, they were making it to make a tremendous amount of money on it. I, I think that they obviously needed to make a return on it. But at the end of the day, it was something that was only made because they felt compelled to do it. And they felt like they actually had to, they felt like there was something so brilliant there that they would do essentially whatever it took to realize that vision. And the other parallel with those films that I, I think about a lot is the way that they're talked about in fandoms and in popular media and in especially other filmmakers. Like people talk about Into the Spider-Verse in absolutely crazy borderline hyperbolic terms. The same way they talk about 2049. If you go into any given Reddit thread um, and you look at the films that if somebody makes a reference to it, people just lose their shit about 2049 and Into the Spider-Verse are two of those movies because everybody who's seen those films and connected with them feels like they saw something miraculous. Like they, they saw something almost life-changing. Um, right. It's amazing, you know? Because again, for every successful one, there are a hundred failures. Look at, uh, even when the right people are involved and you got to give them credit for, well, they probably went into this with the right ideas and you know they cared about the material. Look at um, Duncan Jones' Mute, right? Which was obviously not a direct sequel to Moon, but in terms of here's this director who has this, um, this film that is really beloved, right? It's like probably my top, definitely my top 20, maybe my top 10, one of my favorite science fiction films done on a string shoe budget, mixing practical and CGI just in the perfect way where it like looks great, but they were able to keep the costs down. Um, and the production design's amazing and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you look at Mute and it's like, Mute isn't a terrible film. There are elements of it that are cool. Um, yes, some of the aesthetics pull a little too much from Blade Runner and it feels a little vacuous, but like it was cool to see Paul Rudd as a bad guy, you know, like that was great. Um, but I think that expectations were really high because you're like, wow, the director, writer of Moon is going to make another science fiction film set in that universe. How exciting. And then it was a disappointment, you know, because of a variety of reasons, but not certainly not because it didn't have good actors and it didn't have good quality professionals involved in it. It's just, you know, there's, there's a little bit of luck in this and timing and there's so many factors. Um, I'm sure that if we got ever get a chance, I've been, you know, saying this for years to sit down with Villeneuve and ask him, why do you think this was so successful from an artistic perspective and how do you, how was it greenlit? How did you pull it off? I'm sure he would have some answers and I'm sure he'd be very deferential to the people that he hired and that he worked with because he's very modest and of course is not going to praise himself and he's going to give credit where credit is due. But I think part of him would probably say, I don't know. We just, we gave it our best shot and it happened to be the right group of people at the right time. But like, could we do it again? I don't know. You know, it was risky and it was, and it was difficult. You know, I think that's probably something that he would say. Um, and there was even commentary before that where he said to, I don't know if it was Entertainment Weekly, but he said he had a conversation with Ryan Gosling saying, you know, we need to prepare ourselves for this film not doing well financially. They knew, they knew they probably, they certainly it. with the, with the runtime, but much like, um, Patrick with with into the Spider-Verse again it's a film that I saw and I really enjoyed I don't have the connection that you have to it but what I do have a connection with is obviously the Dark Crystal and they had that series and Frank Oz who directed the original with Jim with Jim Henson just recently made the statement saying he said they did it he said they they took the material and they took it further and they were they were respectful and the story was amazing. He said, I thought it was incredible. So you have the original, you know, Frank Oz, who's this godhead among puppeteers and directors coming out saying they did ah. it. 
And then you have all of the, the fans also saying this is an incredible thing. And largely, much like 2049, it wasn't that successful for Netflix. It didn't really do much for them. And that's actually, Jamie, I think maybe maybe the only franchise I can think of that is similar to Blade Runner in that there were so many years between subsequent installments with very little going on in the interim. Yeah. And, and uh, outside of some release the same year things. yeah but yeah it's almost it's almost actually the same thing right and so yeah. there we go so so that's so we can talk about i, I mean and we, i think we could talk about blade runner and dark crystal perhaps a little more accurately than we could talk about blade runner and star wars because those are two things that like the love and care that went into coming back and trying to pull off a miracle are similar i think yeah and i don't doubt that there was not love and care with star wars and again i don't bring star wars up i think the intents are the similar I think the intents are, let's go back to this material and let's tell a different story. And I think they're vastly different reactions. Um, but then I think about like um, David Lynch's, even though this is a TV series, you have Twin Peaks, which was wildly successful. And then years go by and they release on Showtime the sequel Firewall. series, which I stopped watching because I didn't know what it was about. Um, and I was bored to death, even though I thought it was brilliant. Um, it, you know, it's it's a tough thing. It's a, it's a tough thing. Sometimes what might be successful artistically is not successful financially. I mean, look at all the Michael Bay films, which are largely these juggernaut films that make a shit ton of money, and they're kind of garbage, and everybody knows it. And they just go there to see the oohs and the ahs and the explosions and the colors. Um, and the film industry is a very different place. It's all about tent poles and possibly making billion-dollar IPs essentially, and they're less inclined to produce art house sci fi that speaks to 40 people. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> well, so yeah, it's, I, I, I do think though it's, it's easy to forget, and this is something that we've talked about before too, so I don't want to like get too repetitive. But, but for example, if you look back in the earlier parts of the 20th century, you had, for example, cycloramas, right? You had multi-screen radial theaters. You had advances in, you know, from 35 millimeter to 70 millimeter to IMAX, all these different things. And each of these different technological eras were accompanied by movies that were trying to take advantage of the spectacle of going to see films, right? When, when 3D came into its own in its second life in the, in the early 2000s, you had Avatar coming to take advantage of that too, right? So I do think, and I, I don't want to come across like I'm defending Michael Bay because I fucking hate those, all of that shit. But, I, but I, I think that there is something going on there that is actually more than just look at these like sheeple showing up with drooling, dragging their knuckles into the movie theater and watching stupid things. And no, no, no. It's spectacle. It's, it's, but, there, but it's, there's uh, something to that, I think, because I think oh, for sure. there is something, there's something to the awe of going to movie theaters that is vanishing a little bit. And it has been vanishing for the last couple of decades with Severson's home video, where we are losing our connection to the spectacle and the scale of movie going. And I think one of the few things that has done really well in terms of cinema in the last 15 years, especially because like in the last, you know, with the advent of, you know, flat screen and then HD and then 4K and then Dolby home stereo systems, like it, the, the thing is that going to a traditional movie theater has sort of died off somewhat but premium movie experiences, especially ones using things like Atmos or using things like IMAX, are actually doing very well. And I think that's because there is something to be said for the act of going with a group of other people to watch a story that will awe you on a, on a theater screen. So I, I guess I, I don't want to, again, I'm, today's like my day that I'm paranoid about punching down for some reason. But I, I don't want people to think that, at least speaking personally, that, that I look down on people who enjoy Michael Bay films because I think that... Um, 
they're there. I, I understand. I understand why I, I just get overwhelmed and nauseated by them. But like, but I think that there is something, there's something to that. That's valid. Even if it's I agree, I agree. And I think it's the same type of people that went and saw Jurassic park where it's this amusement park ride of a film. That's why you're, it's a summer event. There's a transformers movie coming out. It's July 22nd or whatever. Let's go see a Transformers film and have a good time. For whoa, sure. I, whoa. We are not putting Jurassic Park in the same field as Transformers. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is Jurassic Park is a, is a it's an is event. summer it's a event movie. It's not event. this like really good, favorite... like amazing, like, oh, Jurassic Park is so much to discuss here. There really isn't. It's a really great Steven Spielberg film. Um that the original there's a lot to discuss in the original there is yeah, but it's agree. not not like there is with blade runner i mean there's okay it's just a yeah bit, uh, no that's what i'm saying a, that's what i'm saying deep existential sci-fi yeah it's a, yeah i mean an, certainly there's more there than you know transformers or whatever or right well you know, it's a armageddon what it's an, you know yeah all right armageddon <laughs> <laughs> fucking movie but I, I will say i will say before we move back to things that are relevant to this episode and close out that what like one of my favorite movie going experiences of all time was two years ago went to a drive-in movie theater outside and saw yeah as opposed to drive-in theater inside and we saw a double header <laughs> of a fallen kingdom and uh and solo outside by the stars you know from 8 p.m to 1 a.m basically and th- and that although solo sucks like that to me was just such an awesome experience of being out there surrounded by other people watching a film and it's something that i miss harder and harder every day of my life as it goes by mm-hmm. i miss that every single day i miss going into a movie theater with people and sitting there and laughing and crying and ducking because something's so loud i i i really miss that and and it's yeah. something that i think um i, I just i want to be careful that it doesn't come across like we are punching down on people who, no i i think that there's a space and a time for that i mean one of the best yeah. memories i have as a child was being going with a friend to their aunt, for the birthday party and we went to a drive-in and it was this big van and we all sat on top and we watched masters of the universe in the summer and it was so much fun the movie's garbage but it was so much fun i'll never forget that i mean it's i think in some ways the star wars the original star wars films were these event pictures you know and uh my first memory of being in a movie theater was for Return of the Jedi, and it was packed full of my friends. So yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's something connective about those experiences and those movies, and they don't always have to be these deep, like, if they're not these deep philosophical whatever, that they're not successful. Um, but I also think that you can have a little bit of both, which is a sure. la Christopher yeah, there's, Nolan, there's still, you know. And, right, who, of course, was attached, at least in word of mouth to Blade Runner, um, in the intervening time, he was never actually, remember there were rumors started that he was going to be doing the film. And then he was like, actually, nobody approached me about this and I wouldn't do it anyway, although I love it. Um, the, and then Ridley Scott shortly thereafter was announced as going to be directing it. And then he dropped out for Covenant. So there was this weird time in like the sort of mid to late 2000s to the early 2010s, where there was a lot of hubbub that seemed like it was moving somewhere about a sequel coming. And, uh, and it's crazy because it's so long ago at this point. But there was a time when, like, when I actually thought for like a week that Christopher Nolan was directing a Blade Runner movie, and I was, I was like, whoa, that would be so cool. Um, but like, I didn't want it anyway. Um, and then, and then, I, I really think, you know, I, I, at the beginning of this episode, I went to go grab a prop, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to come up with an excuse to use it. The movie that made me realize that that Denis Villeneuve was the only person who I think would really pull it off was this one. 
which I, I really feel like yes. this is this is a movie yes. that is it says so much about him as a filmmaker and so much. Also, this is just. Great. Have you seen that, Dan? I'm sure you've seen Enemy, right? Yeah, I thought so. Yes. It's just it's just times. one of my like favorite crazy bonkers films. I love it. I think it's just wonderful and it's so stylized and it's so audacious and it's so extreme and so and unsettling. Things out. It's yeah. so unsettling. And and so when I found out that it, so this was the movie that I was obsessed with of his, although I loved Arrival and I loved Prisoners and you know, Ensemble and everything. But I, I really incendies. I I really was uh I that enemy was one where I was like, holy shit, if he if he's allowed to try that. And I think actually I I mean we, we, I don't know why we haven't done that frame rate yet. But I think in a lot of ways enemy is the closest to twenty forty nine in his filmography that we see before we get to twenty forty nine because it's aesthetically has some similarities to it and the color palette and the tonal palette. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has this extraordinary sense of what am I, where am I, and and who? These very deep probing questions. So anyway, so so when I heard that Ridley Scott was was hiring him for it, I was in Alcon. I was so thrilled, and and I I really remember that being the thing that convinced me that this was worth it. And then, of course, we saw the trailer, and I and that was when I was just overwhelmed, and I was like, this is going to be incredible. And then I, and I really remember so vividly when Johan Johansson dropped out and feeling like, oh my God, is this not going mm-hmm. to work? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was also, LP was attached to it at one point, which Dan and I were talking about, Run the Jewels uh, recently. I don't remember what, on what episode that was. Or what, what, what the hell, why were we talking about that on the air? Do you remember? No idea. I don't know. Maybe we were just texting about it. Anyway, Run the Jewels 4, great album, came out last month. Check it out. Um, LP is one of the producers and rappers on that, and he's super good. And he was attached to the score for a little while. So there was this time where like things were kind of shuffling around and you know falling into place. And, uh, and I was intermittently worried, but because of Enemy, I was like, I, I trust that this guy has the strength of vision to pull it off. And what I think, Dan, going back to something you said a while ago, to me, the reason why it came out the way it came out was because I think Ridley Scott was in some ways doing some shot blocking for, for Denis. I think Ridley was like, if I'm not going to direct it, I'm going to choose my, one of my favorite young directors to come do it, and I will basically just block for him. And I think that that was what helped. And I think he had this great script. I think he had Hampton there running the show, Michael Green turning it into something really taut and a little more commercial that would be viable in some ways. And then I think um, Ridley really helped Denny to get his way on things with the studio. And I'm sure after the studio saw some of the early dailies, they were like, okay, this is, this is going to work. And then from that point, it was smooth sailing. Of course, we will get to that in our next installments of this because we're going to be talking about some of these aspects of the early film. Uh, the history of the early film. But I do think that in terms of sequels, it is an interesting, deep thing about ourselves, the ways that we handle sequels and development of characters that mean a lot to us over time and how every time we're told that we will be getting something, we greet it with anxiety. Even if we're really excited about it, I mean, anything that we really care about, we will always be greeted both with this like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And also this fear, right? which is on one hand stupid. I mean, I think we can all agree that it, this is like, we, we, can, we should be able to distance ourselves from these stories that are just you know, made up stories that we just love. But on the other hand, it's not stupid. It's actually deeply human because it's the story of ourselves that we're watching unfold. It's the story of our life that we are putting together piece by piece and brick by brick. And a lot of those pieces and a lot of those bricks are these stories that we come back to over and over again. 
and um, we have and we've taken ownership. Now. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, we must do po- a lot of podcasts together. Too. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Finishing each other's sentences. Don't talk about Star Wars. No, but I, <laughs> I really feel like it's. Uh, <laughs> I feel like it's just. It's really in, like conversations like this. Conversations like the things that we've been getting from our listeners. Um, really continually hit home for me how miraculous this movie is and how how just completely ridiculous that we got this thing in our lifetimes and that it happened like right at the moment when we were most receptive to it because we had you know 2016 was such an intense year for so many reasons which we won't get into um 2017 was was also just all this uncertainty and all of this newness and I, I specifically remember 2017 started for, for our family with the Women's March. That was like, we did that within a couple of days of January starting up. And I remember being on the Boston Common with our kids and, and with my wife, surrounded by like something like, it was like one of the largest assemblies on the East Coast of the United States, like ever. It was something like 800,000 people. It was absolutely crazy. And, and looking out over just this ocean of humanity and thinking, this is the beginning of this year. Like, where do we go from here? You know. And then for me, 2017, the twilight of that of that year ended with this improbable film coming out that spoke to where we were as a human species so eloquently and so deeply and it and and to me like i will forever be grateful that we had this document of ourselves because like i was saying earlier if it's not really about something then it doesn't matter where you said it or what or what the characters do in it like it has to actually mean something and for me blade runner the original means a lot because it was, as we've said, ad nauseum, a, a perfect mirror to who we were at that point in our history. And, you know, who we were is who we are, of course, because we inherit that. 2049 is a mirror to who we were in 2017, 2016, in that part of our journey as a species. And it continues to resonate because we, are, we never leave those people behind. Those are still us. And I, and I just, I really hope that if we do get another movie which I don't want, which I've said many times, I specifically don't want another movie. If it happens, then like, obviously that will be a huge deal, but like, I'm very fine with the way things are right now. If we do find out that there's another film, I hope that they wait until whatever they have to say basically bursts out of them and becomes something miraculous again, because it's really hard for lightning to strike that many times, you know? Yeah. Someone just commented on that saying, um, I can't, I don't know if I can find it right now, but basically saying, I hope they wait another 30 years if they do make a sequel um so that i you know paraphrasing them so they can be set in a different society 30 years from now um and yeah i mean to a certain extent i agree again i would put my money on not making another sequel but if they were um waiting would probably be a good move um and yeah you know this is a smaller point and uh not as philosophical as patrick but um something about the aesthetic to it too i would say that while the original Blade Runner has aged really well, right? Just because they use so many practical effects and put so much time and money into that. I, I'm not, I can't guarantee this, but I have a feeling 2049 will age even better visually. And the reason why I say that is because the first film still has a connection to the real world of the eighties, right? You cannot extricate those, it works beautifully, but seeing those CRT, those bulky CRT screens are like obviously something that came out of real life. Um, and sort of like in in the way that things can get diluted when you're copying something else, not to say that 2049 was copying anything, but I'm saying that they are pulling their world building from an extrapolation of the first film, meaning, okay, this is a world that's set 30 years after the first film. Um, 
I think that connection is gone. You don't feel this physical connection to America in the 1980s. Um, I think that it is far enough removed as a world that I don't see anything in it that's going to age poorly. I don't, I, they didn't take any steps to make weird contemporary technology fit in or pull something directly out of our world. Um, you know, they use holograms and stuff like that, but that's a both both um, fictional and real thing at this point. So yeah, I have a feeling that the movie's going to age really well. And um, no matter what, I'm really excited to see where these great writers take, you know, the comic, the anime, and potentially a third sequel. It's just a world that um, I don't feel I need to explore more because there's so much already there that's made. But if you're going to let me explore it, I'm excited to do it. You know, one thing I do think, though, that what is what audiences will connect to in a way that we connect to the world of the original. Yes, it's the sights and the sounds of the 80s that are familiar to us, that they recreate in a timeless way. But what connects me to Blade Runner 2049 is the disconnect that we're living in today. That is the that is the atmosphere of the world that we are in today. And we're going to be able to connect with this movie in a way where we have a pandemic going on, where we can't be close to each other. We have to stay apart. And that's completely reflected in the, the energy and the aesthetics uh, and the story of Blade Runner 2049. And I think 15 years from now, all of us are going to look back on this and really deeply connect to this part of of human history of american history in the same way that we connected with the original in just a different respect yes the modern world that we live in especially during the pandemic puts us where we are surrounded by other people at least at our fingertips and with our technology and yet there's a thread of loneliness that i think everyone is feeling from the lack of exposure to other people. And there's something inherently very, very Blade Runner about that in terms of uh, we see that when Kay's walking into his apartment building and there's people everywhere and it's crowded. Same with the streets from 1982 um, uh, from 2019 and Blade Runner and that feeling of loneliness and isolation, even though you're surrounded by people, we may be physically isolated now because of the circumstances, but we still have, you know, WhatsApp and all these apps, you know, you can connect to anyone you want to, and yet there's still something missing and trying to reconcile that within the world that we live in and with our family and friends and relationships is something that I think is resonating in different ways in, in both films, you know, and something yeah. that, it, that really, all of us all over the world have some kind of connection to. For sure. And I know we need to wrap, but it makes me realize again that we need to do a frame rate on the movie Her, which touches on the same, so many similarities of Blade Runner 2049, yet in a completely different way. Um, and in terms of the aesthetics and the disconnect and AI and all of those things. So that's fodder for another episode. And we will. On that note, uh, I'd like to thank all of our patrons and remind everyone that you can go to perfectorganism.com forward slash support or bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. 
and uh, join our Patreon. Starts at just two bucks a month, and you will get um, at least two frame rates per month where we discuss other films, often sci-fi, but just generally things we love or things that we want to learn from or things that one of us is really excited about. And it'll be a mix of the three of us or two of us, depending on the episode. But we've been doing it over a year now. We've really expanded our Patreon, and we really thank you guys for all your support. It helps us, again, upgrade our equipment, um, produce new audio dramas, you know, do things for the podcast, maybe do uh, live events again in the future um so we really want to thank all of you guys for your support um for people who have given us even more and increased their support we're really grateful we really appreciate it um and yeah we look forward to putting out a lot more content for you guys so thanks for uh, tuning in yeah totally and you know what as we close i want to make sure we give a shout out because we did this on perfect organism last episode we haven't done it on this one yet so before we close i'm just going to read the names really quick um, of, of our current patrons so thank you all of these people so Alexander Gates, Andy Ev, Ben Fletcher, Brendan Lutmer, Burke Bennett, Carla Rosa, Chase Cupo, CL11B, Craig Wright, Daniel Purpletree, Darren Gold, Dave Turner, David Benson, David Holmes, Dom, Dwight Paulson, Eli Morrison, Gene McDonald, Graham Zirk, Jackie Childers, Jason Struess, Jonas Holmstein, Jordan Mason, Julian Casey, Ken S., Kyle Burton, Mark Deckard, Mike Dennis, Murray Kucherawi, Nathan Gribble, Nigel Carroll, Paul J. Goodfellow, Peter from the Midwest, Rachel Cordy, Reno D., Richard Blackwell, Richie Ammon, Sethicus 0480, Stephen Bischoff, Stephen Ames, Steve Appleman, Stuart Fowether, Thomas Cruzaz, Thurian Lack, Tim Hazeldean, Tim Lawson, Travis Anderson, Xander House, and Zachary Rice. Thank you each and every one of you guys for supporting us. And if you are interested, bladeburnerpodcast.com slash support. As Dan just said, um, you can come and join us as well. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, everybody. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.